Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. Much of the blog thus far has been dedicated to speaking with folks about how they see our modern world and what their particular skill set or vocation brings to the task of analyzing society. To it, I've interviewed a number of musicians, writers, and other artists, and I'll continue to reach out to that ilk. But lately, I've been wanting to explore more environmental themes. And in fact, one of the beginning posts of this blog was a three-part series called Burning the Elephants back in the spring of 2020, where I examined the link between human inequality and environmental issues. I've always seen the two as going hand in hand, so I've begun to read, write, and reach out to people whose opinions on our natural world and our role as humans within it that I find valuable. So with that in mind, I had the good fortune to speak with Robin James from her home in Brisbane, Australia. Robin has worked for the Nature Conservancy for 12 years and is currently the Gender and Equity Advisor for the Conservancy's Asia-Pacific Division. For 25 years or so, she's been leading and supporting conservation efforts in Asia-Pacific that restore nature, prioritize collaboration, and promote equity and inclusion for marginalized people, focusing on gender equity and natural resource management and protected area networks. I came across her originally in a New York Times article and then went back and read a lot of her work, much of which focuses on the role of women in environmental issues. We've long known that the poor and the marginalized are the most likely to feel the ill effects of climate change, even while they contribute least to the problem. But I wasn't aware, though I should have been, that even within poor nations who are being hammered by environmental degradation, there are gender differences that place women in positions of increased vulnerability and exposure to violence. So I will stop here and let her take over most of the talking. Hey there, Robin. Hi, JR. If you don't mind, maybe um, just tell me kind of what your position is currently with the Nature Conservancy and uh, how you, did you always want to study this kind of stuff? Just what was your, your road to get where you are now? Um, thanks, JR. Yeah, so my position at the Nature Conservancy is the Gender and Equity Advisor for the Asia-Pacific region. So I've been with um, the Nature Conservancy for over 11 years now. Um, I came to this um, organisation looking at climate change and adaptation um, in the Pacific. So I've worked in this region of the world um, for a lot of my career, Australia and the Pacific Islands. And so um, the communities here are probably really feeling the brunt of climate change, both in Australia and overseas. So working on that issue with the Nature Conservancy about how um, to support communities to kind of um, see what they need and be more resilient. Um, but in my time at the Nature Conservancy, quickly realised that um, in conservation, often in climate, women are not, um, are not represented in big decisions around climate, around conservation, both at the community level and then in the organisations themselves and then at that international level. So feeling what can I contribute, we have a lot of amazing biological scientists in our organisation, et cetera, but for me that was probably the, the piece that I was most passionate about and also felt I could contribute to. So I've really focused my career on that, um, is how do we be more inclusive in decision-making around 
natural resources, around climate and around what we decide to, to keep and what we decide to use. So, yeah, okay. that's me. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, maybe a, just a quick little bit of um, vocabulary. You uh, co-authored a paper where you looked at mission statements and homepages of large organizations, and you focused on five terms, sustainability, conservation, response to climate change, poverty alleviation, and gender equity. Um, and we'll talk about the gender equity in a minute. But what um, can you discuss the sustainability versus conservation piece? Yeah, I mean, I think those terms are evol- always evolving. So that, that was written a little while ago now. And so those terms are constantly evolving. So where we previously, I think, termed conservation as pure protection. So that's widely, and in some countries it's still viewed as that, as conservation is like you're kind of keeping something aside and pre- preserving it or protecting it. Whereas for me, sustainability is around using a resource in a way that it can keep going um, indefinitely. Um, But increasingly over the time I've been at the Nature Conservancy, even that we're really evolving that term conservation, it really is about still using places, not so much locking them away in perpetuity. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the places we work in, that's not an option for most people. They need those resources for their livelihoods. So how do we help support um, people who are most impacted by some of our decisions to still earn a living and get a livelihood from some of these resources indefinitely, not Mm -hmm. just for the short term? So there might be kind of a, a, a blending or a melding of the terms a little bit, maybe. Sounds like just coming from different angles, but the conservation piece is still ultimately trying to keep it sustainable for the local population or something like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it probably depends on where you sit in an organization or what organization you sit in, how you define conservation. Yeah. But um, but in my, you know, in my area of work, conservation never means protection, pure protection. It really is about how do you um, support the people who are most impacted by these places to manage them in a way that can help, that supports them to have them forever. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to come back to that statement, um, of these five terms toward, toward at, the, at the end to kind of bring it full circle, but let's jump to uh, the last one for a minute, the gender equity. So I have two quotes of yours that are similar and were interesting to me that, that um, I had not just hadn't thought about it this way before. One of them, um, projects linking conservation to improving livelihoods have in some cases led to further inequities for women and social inequalities can inadvertently be compounded by conservation efforts. And the result is often that women have less decision-making power, receive fewer benefits from conservation Etc. Uh, and they're also at an increased risk for violence. I think you've you've written about as well. So I was wondering if you could explain that how that works because I, I like I said it kind of struck me when I first read it. Um, I guess if we um, if we put patriarchal kind of systems over the top of of anything we're doing. So if we think about supporting women to be or supporting communities to have more um, access to the economic benefits of conservation, for example. So we monetize 
um, conservation in terms of carbon benefits or tourism benefits or um, a resource in there in, in the park, like um, sustainable use of mud crabs, for example, out of a marine area. As soon as you put a monetary value on some of those things, then they become valuable to different people. So if, for example, a woman in the mangrove system is very much dependent, the women very much fish and mangroves and they're dependent on the mud crabs, but then someone external comes in and says, if this, if you do this, this, this mud crab is going to be a heap more valuable. Um, it'll be sustainable, but it will be more valuable because we're going to teach you how to um, improve how you manage that mud crab, et cetera, and it'll be worth more money. Suddenly, a whole heap of different people become interested in that resource that weren't interested in it before. Mm. So if you don't do a thorough gender analysis before you begin something and really understand what the power dynamics are in a place where you're working and who makes the decision, who controls the money, who's interested in different resources for different reasons, if you don't really do that and work with the communities on that, then if you implement some sort of project like that, you can put women, they can be at more disadvantage because suddenly the resource that they're relying on for their livelihoods or to feed their family becomes valuable to someone else and they're excluded from it. And does that does that tie into the violence piece or is that a separate, yeah, uh, separate issue? No, I mean, and you know, violence, all of this is about power. Sure. And so it's not, unless we really understand who, has the power in an organisation, in a community, in a community-based organisation, the donors, like unless we really grapple with that power, like who is the ultimate decider, who decides who gets the resource, who decides how much power, like who shares the power, unless we really understand that we can put people at risk who don't have power um, and that can be risk of violence and we use violence um, broadly to, well, not broadly, but that term of violence can be financial violence, like not having any access to your money. Right. It can be violence, physical violence, which everyone, can, you know, automatically thinks about, which is real and true, but there's other, a lot of other forms of violence as well, being completely excluded from a place that you need for your livelihood, um, not having any control over decisions around your finances, et cetera. That's all a form of gender-based violence as well. Mm-hmm. And, and on a similar note, in your um, the the article "Raising Voices of Pacific Islander Women," quote the following: working on the following priorities to support climate adaptation policies. One of them was climate policies that consider alternative metrics for women's empowerment and inclusion. What does that last part mean? What are some of those alternative metrics? Do you think that would be useful? So we're working on some of that at the moment, like just to really understand. So we see at, you know, the big, the COP26 and other of the big climate change meetings that there's just so women are very much invisible still after all these years. Like you see images that are so um, telling of, you know, a whole bunch of men around a table making decisions around, um, around climate which is going to completely impact on women. And so for our, we're really saying that these metrics need to think about what would it look like in a world where women had more control 
or more say over these decisions. So some of those metrics could be around decision-making. So who is making the decisions around what happens with our climate policy, et cetera? Who's it impacting? How come we're making these decisions around health but we're not considering women's health, for example? And there's just so many things where policy is negatively impacting women because they're not they're not having a, de- a seat at the decision table. Okay. Um, we see all these statistics, things like in the recent floods in Solomon Islands, 95% of the people that drowned were women. And so these are pretty graphic statistics yeah. that women are the most impacted by climate, um, but they have the least say in policies and metrics around deciding what's effective or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, there's a long way to go. I think only four women leaders out of 140 at the last COP26 were women. Um, So there's a, you know, there's a staggering gap between impact, who's being impacted and who's getting to decide to decide. It seems right off the bat jumps out at me as just one of them of a a million other problems, you know, related to gender, like, um, the bigger issue can you know can we address women involved in climate change and the effects of that without addressing the role of women overall? Like, can we separate that out, or does it have to? Can, in other words, can it can it be pro- useful and productive to carve out that niche without making this change for the status of women overall, or does it really just going to be putting uh, a bandaid on the wound until we address just a wider range of economic and political and social issues with women? I think, I think, Jaya, that's where it gets to that metrics question as well. It's like we've really got to think about what the, not just looking at the symptoms and like metrics around the symptoms or the effects of all of this policy um, and the climate and climate and biodiversity loss. It's not, we're not, we can't keep doing metrics um, and solutions around symptoms. It's around really going back a lot further than that. And looking at the systems, what what are the oppressive systems and structures that are resulting in women being completely excluded and the most impacted? So, and that relates to all of the things that oppress women in particular, if we're talking about women. Um, And then there's, you know, the intersectionality of race, of ability, of all these other things. But if those systems continue and we just put, climate policy over the top or conservation policy over the top or whatever it is we're just it's all the same problems but just with a climate or a climate um focus as well so for me it's like we can't we can't do equitable conservation or climate work without starting to dismantle these structures that oppress women that oppress people of color um and so it's really thinking about it different quite differently um, and that, that causes a lot of discomfort for people sure, because, sure. you know, we can't just look at nature or the climate separate from people. We really can't. And these systems, we can't, we can't do it and, and really do it in an equitable way.
moving away from strictly gender just for a, a minute here. An article, Conservation Natural Resource Management, Where Are All the Women? Um, a lot of the studies that you analyzed in there, you and your colleagues, um, talk about places that aren't necessarily causing the main environmental problems. You're talking about Nigeria, Tanzania, Mongolia, et cetera. What does it say that there haven't been the same kind of studies uh, in the US or in the EU? And you know, should people in Africa, for example, that aren't really, you know, should they really be bearing what amount, you know, there seems like they're bearing the brunt of having to fix all this shit sometimes. And um, I don't know if this is true or not. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the focus on the larger powers that are doing more of the climate damage, it, it just seems like they're more impervious to this kind of critique. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets back to my earlier point is if, you know, we're looking at the symptoms and the impacts rather than the causes. So like we can look at the end of a supply chain and, and say, oh, well, you know, for example, a country in the tropics that's facing, you know, huge amounts of deforestation, we can focus on that, that country or those people in those communities and, and question why they're logging, um, but without looking at where that where that's all coming from. So it's really about starting to look at the other end of the supply chain and they're the big the big emitters, for example, the US, China, Australia, and saying, how do we influence that? They're, they're, they're the ones with this power that could really change the climate conservation trajectories because without that pressure to extract and to consume, then there wouldn't be so much pressure on at the other end of the of the supply chain. So for me, it's really... It's really, we can easily focus on the end where the people have least say, they're the most impacted, and then they're trying to carve out a life for their families. Or we look at the really hard end of town and say, well, it's these policies that are, you know, potentially impacting all of this. How do we start being more responsible as global citizens and then we start looking at who has the power and who's influencing all of this and it's usually not the people in Mongolia and Tanzania. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so, and it gets back to that, you know, who's at the table at these COP26, the big decision, in the rooms where the big decisions are being made, not on the fringes. Right. Um, like, and you'll see there's no women there. Sure. It kind of seems like the fox guard and the chicken coop in a way, you know, like... Uh, having to police themselves essentially um, without, I don't know who, who would enforce it, you know, otherwise. And, and that kind of leads me to this quick one. I think this will probably be an easy one for you here, but um, you wrote that while the Pacific islands are often described as highly vulnerable to climate change and lacking adaptation options, such descriptions disregard the ways in which Pacific Islanders are leading climate action and combining their own systems of knowledge with Western science to implement locally relevant climate solutions. The lack of appreciation for Pacific climate leadership is exacerbated by biases in climate research that prioritize Western science and technological solutions. Can you give an example of that? Do you have something in mind that, that kind of pops out to you? I think um, yeah, there's, quite, there's quite a few local examples, which I think um, are really interesting. So, for example, in Marshall Islands, um, a number of years ago, there was um, king tides, you know, compounded with sea level rise. 
Um, so really high tides that were going washing across the airport, across roads, etc. So no sh- no ships and no um, planes could get in. Hmm. But in at the same time, they were having one of the worst droughts on record. Right. So no um, water, and but there's no external help. So the the people of Marshall Islands just had to immediately adapt and so for them just working out how to kind of get water locally how to um they've already been planting some more drought resistant crops so really understanding their local um, crops and species so really going back to basics of what are the species that are going to survive in this kind of environment how do we how do we kind of focus more on those? And so just really having to not, they couldn't rely on anyone because no one was come, no one could come. Um, and so they, so they kind of years ago had started planting like local pandanus, more drought resistant crops, et cetera, that they knew could survive this sort of stuff. So this could help them at this time when there was actually no help. Um, so there's examples like that. Um, and then there's other examples where we see where um, in communities where people are still using um, more local construction materials like thatch, um, stuff like that for their houses mm-hmm. compared to tin, brick, etc. that when they have these severe weather events, um, the, 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 brick and that, the brick and tin houses can wash away pretty easily they, um, and then they're gone, whereas when they have the local materials, they can quickly regroup and build, rebuild a shelter. Um, so things like that have been interesting and also just that community, like network of community rather than individual. So when things happen, community looks after each other. So, you know, food, like sharing food, et cetera, gardens. Um, so I see that quite a bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's about community rather than individuals looking after each other. When what do you things- think, what do you, sorry, why do you think yes. that kind of knowledge is, um, you know, is not, is not prioritized? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it all comes down again to power. Same spot, yeah, same spot we end up. <laughs> so we value some knowledge over others. And so the most dominant knowledge is what we value the most. So Western science is seen as um, objective, as um, value, you know, it's not value-driven, whereas if we really understand science, it's completely political. There's no such thing as objectivity. Um, Who's deciding the questions that they ask? Who's deciding the answers? And who's deciding what gets prioritized and funded Mm -hmm. and so for me um yeah there's some really interesting work people are starting to sort of look at around decolonizing um science and so just really supporting and we're doing some work on that around how do we really start questioning who is asking the questions who's deciding what we research who's deciding who you ask who's deciding what is knowledge so, yeah, I think yep. um, it all comes down to that kind of colonising power of who decides what science is even. Yeah, I remember that uh, the late 
zoologist Stephen Jay Gould said, uh, all science is cultural bound, culturally bound. Um, yeah. So the million dollar one here, um, again, from my perspective as a sociologist, this, this is where this question emanates. Um, but can environmental, these environmental issues, and we could tie in the gender too, I think they would go well together here, um, be solved within can they be solved with capitalism as the dominant economic system? And if so, is there a way to adjust capitalism to make it more uh, humane and friendly to the environment? Or do we need to kind of scrap it? That's a really big question, Jay. It's the million dollar one, remember? It's the million dollar one. (laughs) I guess for me, um, my answer to that is, Capitalism relies on um, continual growth. So it relies on always, you know, going to the, we're always going for more. Um, But we know that the resources on our planet are finite. So for me, there's some pretty fundamental problems there. Um, So for me, I would say that no. And capitalism is a very patriarchal construct. So it benefits some at the expense of many, 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 many others. Um, So for me, we really do have to rethink our whole systems of being and they're around capitalism. Maybe there's a way with capitalism, but for me, I can't see it because they're really, it's really determined on um, exponential growth. Um, survival of the fittest and just these really patriarchal systems that that mean that there's always someone benefiting at the cost of someone else. Um, By definition. Yeah. yeah, So for me, how does that, how does that relate to um, a fair and equitable planet when there's always someone having, if you benefit, it's at the cost of many others. So um, for me, I think about, I'm thinking increasingly about kind of that philosophy around feminist leadership and around feminist leadership is around sharing the risk. So at the moment, we don't share risk. So you and I can profit by luck of the countries that we live in. We can profit at the expense of others in um, in other countries who get paid nothing to make our clothes and et cetera, um, or, or at the expense of our planet. But if we had to share that risk and share that cost, um, I think there'd be really different decisions made. So sharing the risk, sharing the cost, sharing the power, and then sharing the benefits. If we had to truly share the benefits of, of, of our, the luck of where we were born, um, people in you know, other countries wouldn't be logging their forests so that we could have a nice bookcase or whatever it is. So for me, I I can't see how they go together without completely rethinking capitalism. Yeah, I think, you know, and we call it this kind of Pollyanna approach, like environmental sociology, they talk about it. One of the notions people will say is that human ingenuity will, will solve it. You know, we ran out of whales, so we did coal. We ran out of coal, we did oil. We run out of oil, we'll figure something else out. Like, in other words, like that belief in the the technology aspect of capitalism is going to save us. But um, 
but I, I don't see why there's any how there's any proof that that actually uh, is true. But I, I, if I had to speak for that, you know that I know that's uh, and it's common. I ask my students these questions, survey all kind of survey questions, and not not the majority, but many will say, yeah, like. I'm not too worried about it because we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, we'll ingenuity and entrepreneurship and all these kind of, you know, business class terms, you know, are gonna, are gonna set it, set us up that um, article. One of the articles, oh. go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was going to say, I guess, you know, I guess, you know, humans are incredible. So we are incredible. Like we're, you know, the ultimate in adaptive species, like look at what we've done to the world um, so maybe we will be find some way, but it won't be in a world that we have. It won't be in this really incredibly diverse world and it will be a much harder planet to live on. Like it's already incredibly hard even in our lifetimes. Um, so, yeah, maybe we will in some form, but that doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. Somebody will survive. It, it might, yeah. Uh, that that, mean it's an okay uh, approach. So going back to my initial question, when I first started your five, the five terms um, that you studied in the one article, uh, where is it here? Sustainability, conservation, response to climate change, poverty alleviation, and gender equity. Do these, can we separate these? Are these completely uh, on their own isolated or do they all go together? And this is kind of, you've kind of touched on this, I think a little bit before, but those five terms, uh, I, 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 don't, I can't say you should rank them or something, but is there one you think that is, that stands out or do these all have to be tackled together depending on what your end goal is? And I don't even know exactly what your end goal is. I mean, I, I guess I'm a systems thinker. So for me, it's like they have to be considered, one can't be considered without the other. So, um, you know, recently I've been writing about that, like you can't save the forest at the expense of women. So it's just not an option. So we have to be thinking about these together. But for me it really does come back to power and leadership. So without really dismantling these systems of power that mean that we have to think about conservation and gender equity and all these things, it all comes back to like this dismantling of power structures and these capitalist structures that mean that we have to keep thinking about these things because they're not being addressed otherwise. So I feel that unless we really reckon with and sit uncomfortably with the fact that everything that we get comes at the expense of others currently and the environment I don't know how we how else you can do it because otherwise we're just fiddling around the edges yeah that's great and it comes back to that meme that you showed earlier yeah yeah that's great that old saying I heard recently um feeling uncomfortable this is in terms of race but in america but feeling uncomfortable is a necessary element to dismantling discrimination like you're just gonna have to you're just gonna have to suck it up (laughs) you know yeah it's just not gonna and it's not and i think you know we tried to we've tried to really broach the subject of women um helping women be, be more involved in my work so conservation climate you know that's my focus but it it's very uncomfortable for people. And I think that often we try to help make it less uncomfortable by saying, 
men are winners as well if we if we address this. But you know, if we're really honest about it, there are going to be some losers, mm-hmm. um, and they're the people that are really profiting from the <laughs> the use, the inequitable use of resources and labor and women. So for me, there is going to be some losers. Towards the end of our conversation, I had one more question for her, kind of a lightning round. I wanted to hear what she thought about the war between Russia and the Ukraine and how it might impact environmental issues as well as marginalized peoples. What about the effects of the war and Ukraine? Can you predict these uh, ripple effects, the trickle-down effects to the women that you have worked with and the Pacific Islands and other places? I think, um, you know, the immediate effects of any war is an increase in gender-based violence. So when you've already got structures that are inequitable, any kind of unrest, be it from climate, from war, from anything, um, means that the people who are most vulnerable are even more impacted. So, you know, we see these state sanctions on on Russia. They're going to be impacting women and children more than anyone. Um, They're going to be impacting the poor more than anyone. And that's the same with war. So we're seeing already at borders um, women and children, like the increase in child trafficking, in human sex trafficking, et cetera, is all just going through the roof. Um, as soon as there's any kind of destabilization, it's always women and children who suffer the most, which yeah. is completely awful. Right. Um, but it gets back to these systems of oppression that, you know, are even worse whenever there's any kind of crisis. We yeah. bunker down and we default to that kind of masculine authority power structure that, that isn't is so inequitable for the environment and for and for pe- people. Um, so yeah, I mean we haven't seen the flow on yet for the Pacific, but we will because I mean just some practical ways I guess aid will probably be channeled through military aid to to Europe rather than for climate aid etc to the Pacific. Um, there's practical things like that. But also there's this kind of doubling down on military. We're seeing how much is being spent on military spending compared to aid. It's something like it's eye-watering the difference. Um, and then, yeah, so there's these kind of mm-hmm. policy changes that impact everyone. We just spend so much money on military um, and defence compared to like 44 times more than on health in some countries. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, the U.S. can't talk when it comes to health. That's for sure. I mean, geez, no. the worst model yeah. out there. Yeah, the, and people profit from this. You know, like the the gas prices yeah. are through the roof here in the U.S. Yes. You know, as the profits for the oil companies, you know, have gone. You know, are, are increasing, and in, you know, and the CEOs are getting the bonuses and stuff, you know, and the price is just being passed down, like yeah. you said, to the lower class. And, and it's whatnot. always the most, it's always the poor that um, the people, the poor and the people who are already marginalised through these systems that that bear the highest cost. So fuel prices here have gone up 33%. Wow. Um, and so people who already are really just living like just managing to scrape by, if you have that kind of um, increase to your kind of weekly bill, 
that it, household um, expenses and you're just really, really becoming super vulnerable straight away, whereas the rich can absorb that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just increasingly uh, inequitable. I've really enjoyed this, this talk, so I appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Robin James, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast on all the usual places. I really enjoyed meeting Robin, and we talked about all kinds of things beyond the environment, music and concerts, her doctoral dissertation, our current COVID world, life in Australia, and I appreciate her openness and engagement. I also thank Meg Bresnahan and Andrew Harmon at the Nature Conservancy for helping me connect with her. I'll attach the meme that Robin and I discussed, which has sort of summed up my view of the role of capitalism in the environment. And I also want to clarify that when Robin talks about COP26, she's referring to the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, which took place in Scotland in 2021. Sometimes when I've gone back and listened to earlier podcasts, I realize there are things that might not need explanation at the moment they are discussed, but it's probably wise to make sure I put them in that context. For example, when I spoke with Patterson Hood in Portland, Oregon during lockdown in 2020 and the height of the Black Lives Matter protests there, it was in the forefront of our conversation, but I'm not sure how these things will be remembered down the line, so I'm trying to do better at providing context. As for the music, the podcast starts with I Am Women, a tribute to Helen Reddy from the 2020 Australian Recording Industry Association Music Awards Ceremony. And in the background now is Billy Bragg singing The Milkman of Human Kindness. Midway through, we heard Wrangled by Angelina Presley. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of the blog is to engage in public sociology, which tries to bring academic discussions out to the streets, so to speak. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and a password, and then you can comment after each post. And at the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. Finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. And thanks for listening.